Hello, lovelies. Welcome to the Fat Joy Podcast, where we talk each week about how to flourish in an anti-fat world. I'm Sophia, a fat person and professional coach who loves talking to other fat people about what it's like to live within oppressive systems that marginalize our bodies and how we still dare to have the audacity and courage to reach towards our collective liberation and embrace our joy. Please know this is an adult content podcast, so there will be swears. We will be talking about harms we've experienced, and we will be rebelling against diet culture, anti-fatness, ableism, racism, etc. If you'd like to support the Fat Joy podcast and get bonus content as a thank you, please check us out at patreon.com slash fatjoy. I am so glad you're here with us. Enjoy. Hello, everyone. I'm Sophia, the host of the Fat Joy podcast, and I am here with Virgie Tovar today. And um, I'm so excited. Virgie, you were and have been one of the voices that really helped me along my fat liberation journey. I actually pulled out my You Have the Right to Remain Fat book and like held it before we got on the call just to like be with it again. And I saw like the folded pages because I'm a page folder Um, and, you know, (laughs) the notes. And it just was such an important work for me. And then, of course, I've been following you since then. And you're doing such incredible things. And I'm really, really honored that you are here and that I get to talk to you. So thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, it's, it's absolutely my pleasure. And I love, I mean, I love the topic of fat joy. So it's such a delight to be here. <laughs> <laughs> yay, yay. Um, well, Virgie, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, I mean, um, I'm always like, you know, where, like I, there's so many ways to start who am I? And especially when it comes to the, the the topic of fat joy, like, you know, I grew up in a fat family. I've always been fat. Um, and I've always been someone who, not always, but like, you know, I, I was not introduced to fat phobia or weight discrimination at home. Um, I was introduced to it at school. And so by, uh, you know, around the age of five, I was experiencing fat phobia. So I have a very personal relationship to the barriers to fat joy in our culture. And I really, you know, I did what a lot of people in larger bodies do when they are introduced to fat phobia. And that is I started restricting food. Um, I, you know, eventually that was a runway to obsessive exercise. Um, And, you know, it was just very, very painful. Um, It was just a lot of living every morning. My day would start with sort of the thought of, I hate this body. And I would spend the rest of the day um, figuring out ways to shrink my body and change my body and all of these things. And like weight loss to me, I think at the time it, it was sort of symbolized success and health and, and these kinds of things that we've been taught are associated with thinness. But when I think back on it, I'm like, oh, I was just, I was risking my life in the name of not being abused in hopes that someday I would be socially accepted. If I just sacrificed enough that someday I would become a thin person and that I would be free from all of the, the sort of constrictions that felt like were upon me as a person in a larger body. And then um, I sort of had a few moments, right? Like, I mean, I, this is kind of a little bit of my, of my like, that my origin stories let me let me kind of like get to kind of the punchline of like what I do now um and maybe we can get into some of this story but like now um I write books about you know how to love your body at any size um I write books about you know the history of fat phobia and, and weight discrimination um so my uh I have four books on the topic the first one is called hot and heavy fierce fat girls on life love and fashion which is an anthology then I wrote you have the right to remain fat um then I wrote the self-love revolution, radical body positivity for girls of color. And my most recent is a journal called the body positive journal. So I'm very, very, very committed to this space. Um, I'm a contributor for Forbes.com where I cover plus size fashion and how to end weight discrimination at work. Um, I do international trips with plus size travelers where we get to like go to other countries and 
become really good friends and, you know, talk about what it's like to be a fat traveler and share all of our best hacks and <laughs> create memories and all of those kinds of things. Um, I lecture uh, at universities and I also do a lot of corporate trainings um, for, you know, workplaces, corporations and nonprofits um, that really want to make their workplace free of weight discrimination um, and more accessible to people in larger bodies. And, and, and the list kind of goes on, right? Like I, I work with brands sometimes um, and uh, it's just like my entire life is about kind of ending weight discrimination and teaching people uh, but they can thrive at any size. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Oh, I love how many different areas you're doing this work within. It's pretty incredible that you've been able to be so recognized in all of these different spaces, Virgie. That's I just it's amazing. And it's so good. I love that you're doing corporate workshops as well, because this is this is one where I mean, I, I feel there is still a lot, a lot of work to be done. Like, I don't know how many organizations I've spoken with or worked with, um, like as a leadership coach, I work with a lot of their clients. So the, or they're, sorry, they're my clients, their employees, and they'll be talking about the DEI work they're doing and body size, weight discrimination never comes up at all. It's not on the radar. So I'm so happy to hear that you're doing that work as well. Yeah, I mean, it makes me really happy too. And I mean, it's, it's, it really is, you know, I mean, you, I think that it might be surprising to hear that it's, it's tech companies. It's like, you know, it's like the Seattle Transit Authority. It's, it's Square. It's Waymo, you know, like the, the like electric self-driving cars. Like, you know, it's really, it's, it's incredible to kind of see that the sort of the, sp the scope or the spectrum of like who's invested. And, and, and for me, the power is, how did that conversation get there? Because someone in a larger body asked for it at work. And I know not everybody can do that. Um, but like one of the things that blows my mind is if like somebody has affinity spaces in their workplace, um, they can have a plus size affinity group or a fat positive affinity group or a body positive affinity group. And that's usually my entry point to the space. So I just kind of want to like, you know, it, sure. I mean, it, it's easy to imagine, right? Like these corporations are just like on the cutting edge and they're in bed. I'm sure, you know, I think they, right. They make funds available for it, but it's really the employees who are in larger bodies who are saying we can do better. Um, and so that's really exciting to kind of recognize, like, you know, this one person can really shift and bring in that kind of education into a corporate space. Yeah, that's incredible. And how great that idea of affinity groups. So then it, if it can be a group of people asking for something that would support them as well. That's so great. Oh, I love that. Yay. Yay. That makes me so much more hopeful for corporate spaces. <laughs> yes. Um, so let's go back to where you were talking about as a kid, your connection to the word fat and kind of your journey with it. Yeah. I mean, um, I have this very long relationship to this word and I think, um, it really does start with, you know, that word was introduced into my vocabulary at, you know, four or five years old and I never... I don't think I'd ever heard that word or it had never been used against me. And I kind of remember that moment as very emotional. And it was like on the playground and it was a boy and it was the boy who looked up all the girl skirts. Um, and he was the one who introduced me and he said he called me fat and he sort of said it in this really hateful way. Like I, I wrote about it and you have the right to remain fat. And I say it like, it's like, it was like snot being ejected from his body. You know, that's the way he said it. Um, and I, I sort of knew it was a bad word, but I didn't have a history with that word yet. So it didn't have the intended impact, but it was very shocking. You know, it was surprising. And then that word would go on to become part of my daily life, you know, from almost like from that day forward, it was really, really interesting. Um, and I really think that that word, I don't know, like if, if you think of like, I think of that word as almost a chisel and it was just chipping away at me day in and day out and day in and day out. Um, and it, 
I mean, right, like a lot of people use the word teasing or bullying, and I just don't feel like those words are really extreme enough. I really use the word abuse, trauma. Um, you know, I real, I mean, I don't know what you would call a systematic, you know, process of dehumanization besides like abuse. Um, and so it just, I really came to understand that that word was the worst thing that you could be and that you should do absolutely anything in your power to not be that word. And I really undertook, because I think alongside that word being thrown at me, I was also getting all this advice about how I could make the abuse stop. I could make the fat phobia and the abuse stop if I just ate less or if I just moved more. It was really about like, I mean, it really came down to, I felt like the way that I understood the problem was that I had a problem with eating and that if I could control my problem, quote unquote, with eating, that I could become the right kind of person. And I think specifically, I kind of want to, I always want to point out that like the education was very gendered. Like this was coming from boys. This was coming from boys who I read and who were performing straightness, right? Like these were heteromasculine. These are like straight boys um, who are teaching me that there's something wrong with me because they don't want to date me or because they don't see me as like a future wife material. And that the problem and that that, the fact that they don't see me as marriageable or quote unquote desirable, um, that that is a punishable offense. Like they get to abuse me because of that. So I kind of think, you know, for a lot of people, like the word fat might be kind of like the most obvious thing, but a lot of times there's a lot of stuff that's being loaded into that word. Um, And so I often think like nowadays I'm like, oh my God, I was learning rape culture. I was learning sexism. I was learning racism. All of that stuff was all embedded in that. And it really took over my life. You know, I really, I, you know, I had an eating disorder that I didn't know I had because my doctor was promoting it. Um, my doctor never asked, you know, I remember the first time I starved myself at nine, nine or 10 years old, the summer between fifth and sixth grades. And I came in after that summer and he was just so overjoyed. He was like, whatever you're doing, keep doing it. And maybe you can date one of my sons if you like are more are successful, right? So again, more sexism, you know, his sons, he is white, his sons are white. I'm coming from a Latinx Mexican background. Um, so there's so much laden in it, the classism, the racism, the xenophobia, the fat phobia, the sexism, right? Like all of it's in there, like some kind of disgusting little parfait. And so I just like, you know, I I really took like there was no one who wasn't promoting it. There was no one who was saying, I'm worried. What is going on? A child shouldn't be losing weight. Um, this is a lot, you know, this is a very rapid change in size in a very brief period. I'm alarmed. There was only congratulation. Um, and so I think that that really allowed me to not see that I had an eating disorder. I did not see that exercising two to three hours a day as a child was not normal not quote unquote healthy or whatever. There was no one who was bringing like raving the red flag. There was no one. Um, and so that went on and became worse, um, through my teenage years and, you know, college I'm introduced to feminism. So I'm kind of aware of body image, but there's not really fat positivity in the mix. So I'm like aware of body image. I'm identifying as a feminist, but I'm still dieting. And I feel like all the, all the women around me also were. So I think like there, that, that's, that always fascinates me that like feminism was not my introduction to fat positivity. Um, then I, randomly end up dating a fat positive person through, I mean, I did not even, I did not know. I mean, I didn't even have the word, the words fat positive, or I didn't have that in my vocabulary at all. And I don't think he really did either. He was just someone who didn't see there was anything wrong with my body and he was very vocal about it. And so, um, you know, in some ways, like, you know, he like that, that relationship 
really shifted my narrative of like, I'm not desirable. Um, I, if I date someone, it's it would only be because they're tolerating my body because I have a great personality or I'm really smart or whatever. And he was the first person who really troubled that. He really troubled that, you know, that narrative. And he said, you're so sexy. You're so desirable. You know, can I, can I watch you undress? Can I watch you shower? Like these were things that I just didn't like, you know, that kind of worship and adoration was something that I just never believed to be possible for me as a, as a fat woman. And so, you know, and then the, like, he was very just loving and tender. He would constantly tell me like, you're perfect. You know, you're perfect the way you are. You're, you're exactly the right size and like all of these things. Right. And he also, I mean, he was like one of these miracle people where I'm like, did he even exist or was he some kind of angel or some kind of like weird amalgam that I made up? Like, it's like he, not only did he do that, I was a recovering Christian who still had a ton of guilt and shame around sex, my body, you know, all kinds of things that are really connected to, um, I, I grew up in a in a, a Pentecostal home, so um, I had a lot of residual just shame and guilt about almost everything. He was an atheist who kind of walked me through all the game, the, the guilt and shame. He was like, literally, it was like some kind of therapist from the set from I don't know where. He was like, well, let's go through all of your beliefs about this, and I will deconstruct all of them slowly and patiently as many times as you need me to. And then so through that relationship, I'm not only losing shame about my body, I'm beginning to let go of like the residual. Because with Christianity, it's very similar to leaving diet culture where you're like, I'm done. And then you're like, oh, wait, all the software is still there. I'm still operating. This operating system has not been deinstalled. Um, so, you know, it was very similar where I was like post-Christianity, but I still have all this residual stuff. And he just walked me through all of it, like a coach. Then, and the final, the final gift that I think he really gave was he helped me change my relationship to food. He would literally stand with me while we were cooking and he would hold my hand and, you know, he would say, it's okay to eat pasta. It's okay to eat cheese. And, you know, and he would like guide my hand as I was like, you know, I would be freaking out, right? Like the idea is like, oh, let's have macaroni and cheese. Oh my God. Macaroni and cheese, someone who's like a still in the throes of diet culture. It's like, it's like saying, you know, let's cook a baby or something. You know what I mean? I, it's like completely <laughs> satanic almost. And so like, I'm panicking, like I'm panicking because macaroni and cheese, I don't get to have that as a fat person. Macaroni and cheese is the quickest pathway back to being abused. It's the quickest pathway back to my childhood. Um, and, and that's what my brain really believes. And so he's like, maybe pasta isn't bad. Maybe cheese isn't bad. Maybe I can hold your hand while we're making the mac and cheese. And when you're hesitating, I can like maybe tip your hand a bit into the pot, right? And so he he did all of that. And it was just like completely intuitive to him. It was just so reparative and beautiful and amazing. Um, and so that relationship, right? Like I, I credit that relationship with a lot of the, a lot of like fat positivity that we were practicing without calling it that. Yeah. It wasn't political. It was like romantic, you know? I don't, it, it, I don't know. Not the political or romantic are necessarily always separate, but we didn't use, it wasn't like, I am a fat activist, therefore we shall do this. Um, it was like, this person is hurting. This is how I, this is how I can help, you know? Um, and I, and because I love them. And so like moving forward, we were still dating when I started graduate school and, um, graduate school is when I got really interested in, and I think our relationship had a lot to do with this. I got really interested in how weight discrimination impacted gender in women of color, um, because it had impacted my sense of gender massively as a child. I was very confused. I got, I felt very confused about, um, being a girl, but not getting any social signaling around being a girl. 
Um, so I had a lot of gender confusion as a child and it translated to all kinds of things. Once I started experiencing sexual debut, um, I think I felt a lot of pressure to overperform femininity because I felt like it had been denied to me. And so I was really interested to see if other women of color had experienced this phenomenon. So I go into grad school. I'm really interested in this research. Um, I'm told by my graduate advisor that it's career suicide, that no one cares about this issue. Everything about fat has been written. This is 2009. Everything about fat has been written. Yeah, literally she said that. Um, and it was such a bummer, right? She was like such a hero and like an incredibly brilliant critical race theorist who just had this like massive glaring fat phobia that like she couldn't overcome or whatever in that meeting. And, um, and, and he, my partner at that time, uh, my fat positive partner, Sam, um, he was outside that meeting, thankfully. Like we, we were kind of inseparable at that time. And I remember walking out of the office and I was kind of demoralized. And he shot up from his chair where he'd been sitting. And he was like, this will not stand. He's a New Zealander. He's like a Kiwi. He's like, this will not stand. Um, you know, and, and he was like, he was like, fuck her and her fat phobia. Like, we're not doing, like, you will find another advisor who will support you. And he had just gone through grad school, too. So he had, I mean, I got, I got this magical angel person. So it's like, he was like, I'm going to help you advocate through grad school because I know the game now. And you need to get an advisor who's behind you and you need to, like, move move on from this person. So anyway, that was, you know, so grad school was like a big turning point for me. That relationship um, ultimately ended. Um, and I, I ended up discovering fat activism through researching the background of this topic. Um, and, uh, and I ended up like at a fat conference. That was kind of like really the big moment where like, <laughs> I've been kind of reading literature on fatness and like how different cultures treat fatness. Like not, not all cultures in the world hate fat people. That was a huge, big thing for me, right? Like to learn, to read anthropologists work who are doing work in places like Mauritania and Niger, where the fatter you are, the more desirable you are, the more respect you have, although the exact opposite of American culture. And that was really massive and interesting. Um, and then I'm at the, I, I, someone, someone was like, Hey, have you heard of this fat conference? I think it might be useful for your research. You should go. And I'm just immediately like, I don't even know what I'm about to get myself into. It's like a life changing experience. I meet a group of 60, 70, a lot of like fat people who are amazing, who are like babes, right? And they're like wearing bikinis and they're wearing cat eye sunglasses and they've got like, their nails are done and they're like polyamorous. They've got like multiple partners like following them around and they're laughing and they're they're not apologizing and they're then they've altered their garments. They're wearing like crop tops and stuff. And this is again, like this is 2010-ish at this point. And I had never seen anything like it. And to just sort of see that fat life could look like this. It just, I just was like an instant convert. I was like, whatever y'all are doing, I'm doing it too. Yeah. <laughs> I'm convinced. Like, I'm done. Like, I'll leave diet culture. I'm never going to diet again. And they started to, I think the really important questions that they began to ask me and ask each other in that space were, um, do you know there's something wrong with being fat? Do you know what fat phobia is? Like, do you know that um, you don't have to diet. And I had never thought of those things before. I had never considered those questions before. And so that really blew open this whole new world. And I really doubled. I mean, it went from like sort of shame and ambivalence around fatness to just full on, like, I'm, I'm a thousand percent behind this movement and I'm a thousand percent ready to self-identify as fat. And I'm a thousand percent ready to be terrifying to the culture. Um, <laughs> I love that to be terrifying. <laughs> yes. And it was like, I had, everyone wore like had this fat necklace that we all wore um, that, by this Australian artist. Um, and it was like, it was like, it became a word that was about community. That was about taking a stand against a culture that was full of shit. Um, and to really, I think for me also, that word became like a rallying cry and a way of, you know, um, articulating that I refuse to accept blame anymore for what was in fact a cultural um, error and a cultural like system of dehumanization. And, um, and I, I think also for me, 
that period and and identifying that word and throwing out that word, like literally wearing the necklace or wearing a shirt that said I'm fat or whatever. Like it was a way of gaining control of the conversation. I was like, you're not going to use that word because right, like what happens, there's kind of like this like, like linguistic theory, right? Like when you, when you are in a marginalized body and like you have been kept in your place through language, what happens is when the person who is in the marginalized body wields that word first, like throws that word down first, um, then the power dynamic has shifted. So no longer can you invisibilize me and dehumanize me because I've thrown the gauntlet down first. Um, so the power that you have over me is now shifted. And so I really was into that. I was like, if I throw this down and I have, I've sort of disempowered you as a bigot, I have claimed in pride the word that you are using to try and dehumanize me. Um, I was really into playing with that. Like for years, it was like very, very, very enthralling for me. I love the provocation of it. I loved being perceived as like an angry, over the top, like fat person. Um, and so there was definitely like that kind of like that aggressive thing that was so beautiful and wonderful. And then I think kind of now, the word is like, it's such a central part of my lexicon. It's such a central part of my life. It's like part of every single thing that I do every single day. Um, and it's just beloved and it's kind of warm and it doesn't, it doesn't quite have like, I think what, what I love about it, it's a bit of a shapeshifter. Like there are still moments where it is the gauntlet that I've thrown down. And there are moments where it's just casual. And there are moments where it's like romantic and sweet. Like when I'm playing with my partner and we're like, talking about my fat belly or like whatever. And that's hot. Um, and then there are moments where it's like, Oh, this is an intimacy between you and me. This is a shorthand for we share a history and we don't have to explain all, some of these things to each other. Right. Um, so that's, yeah, that's a very long answer, but that's my relationship to it. Yeah. It's so good. Thank you for that. I, it's, it's so it's so profound to see how this one word impacts people so deeply. And I love all these different stages that you went through with it. I can relate to a lot of it, actually. Um, and you also use the word body positivity. And I really wanted to ask you about that, too, because you've got the body positive journal. So how do you feel about that word in relation to fat as well or fat liberation like body because there's a lot of there's a lot of conversations around is it body positivity is it fat liberation what's been appropriated by body positivity folks like there, it's a bit of a contentious um either or and i i don't know that it has to be so i'm just curious what your thoughts are because you do still use it and it's part of the work that you do is the word body positivity yeah i mean like i at the end of the day i identify more as a fat activist or like a fat liberationist, fat positive person, whatever. Like that's, I think that's always going to feel where my alignment really lands. Um, what I, what I was finding was that a, I was spending an inordinate amount of energy articulating the difference <laughs> yes. between fat liberation and body positivity. I found that it was, um, a barrier to communication. Um, and I found that for the average person, they're interchangeable. Um, like they, they understand a lot of concepts that would be, I would say, I mean, body positivity and fat activism or fat liberation share ideologies. Um, <clears throat> but I think for a lot of people, like I could just tell them things that are just under the fat liberation umbrella and they would code them as body positive. I also think like, for example, and I think for me, it was like, you know, I think that I had a moment of like reckoning where I was like, is this the hill that I'm going to die on? Because I could die on this hill, like literally, you know? Um, and I felt like the answer for me was no. Um, so, you know, I think, I think, uh, right. And I, and I, and I also was able to kind of step back a little bit and sort of, stand in the shoes of the person who maybe isn't quite ready to say fat liberation or fat positive and maybe they're really interested but like if if they're going to be sort of forced or pushed to use that language it might be a bit of a barrier to them kind of getting deeper into it and having an organic progression with that with that word and the ideas that are part of that word um 
And I was able to be like, oh, right. Like how I feel about other political movements that aren't, that I'm not like, that maybe I don't align with 100% or I don't know yet. Or like, I'm a supporter, but like, I'm not living in that identity. Like, remember that discomfort? Yeah, yeah. people have that about <laughs> other things. Like, so I think it was like this moment of just, and again, I like, I don't really have judgments about other people's you know, strict usage of one or the other. I just was like, what are my goals? What do I care about? What is my vision for this work? And for me, I was like, I, I think stepping away from some of the, the linguistic accuracy and getting into the heart of the matter. Like my message is not whether you, whether you're getting a book on body positivity or you're getting a book that's called You Have the Right to Make That, the concepts have not changed at all. Um, and so you're not getting a different message. But I think I saw it as like, really, I mean, I guess one way we could put it, and I think there are people who would argue against this, I saw it sort of as an accessibility issue. Um, and I was like, I'm not going to let this, which is out the gate, right? Out the, this is not like question number seven or number 17. This is question number one. And if we're stuck at question number one, um, I just found that it wasn't getting to the end result that I wanted. And I think like as someone who really cares about language, cares about accuracy, and I think is like a theory nerd and has that academic nerdery side, like, oh my goodness, there's a part of me that would revel in like living on that hill. Um, but I just sort of, I was like, you left academia for a reason. You left academia because you wanted to make this conversation more accessible. So what is in service to that? You know, and I think like making the calls on where the point of diminishing returns, where, where am I starting to, where is the integrity, you know, like the margin of integrity, right? That's, that's a very individual question. And for me, I don't feel like I press up against them. I don't feel like I've ever hit a moment where I'm like, okay, integrity is being, um, you know, integrity is being sacrificed in the name of something else. I don't feel like I've hit that point. Yeah. Oh, I love that. Yeah. Thank you. That makes so much sense. It makes so much sense. And you know, it's interesting because I've asked people on the podcast, the what's your relationship to the word fat question. So many guests and myself included found their way to the word fat through the phrase body positivity. Like it really is a door. It can be a doorway. It certainly was for me. I was not ready to use the word fat for a long time, but, but I could get behind the concept, the phrase body positivity, even though now you're right. Looking back, I was learning fat liberation, but it was, it took me a while to be okay with the word fat. So I'm glad body positivity was there for me. Like, I'm just, I'm just like, I think like, I really think it's important. Like some people are out the gate comfortable with like, I'm fat. I mean, that, that was me, right? It's like out the gate. I'm like fat activism, fat, fat, fatty, fat, fat. Like I'm just like, <laughs> I'm here for it. I'm ready. Like you know, I have, I had a separatist background politically. So I was like, I'm ready to just like make people mad. You know, like I came from like a separatist, like anti-racist. I was like my, my racial, my, like my political origins are like, you know, pretty intense anti-racist politics. So I'm like, I was already in that world. A lot of people are in that world. A lot of people are in that world. And it's really generative for them to come to the language that feels authentic to them, right? Um, and so like, I think there, you know, again, like I think there's a case to be made for accuracy that sometimes can be philosophical. And then, but there's always, a, there's always like a, okay, but like ideas that aren't in service to human processes, what's the point of those? In the same way that like data that doesn't create some pathway for humans to thrive, what's the point of the data, you know? And I just feel like it's very similar where it's like, sometimes we can get caught up in sort of the philosophical integrity of something and like, but is this serving the person who is suffering and who like maybe isn't quite ready to use that language? Um, there's, there's room for the person who's ready out the gate to use it. And there has to be room for people who aren't ready out the gate to use it, I think. Yeah. Yeah. I love that. Well, and speaking of that, this is a great kind of segue into the work that you're doing with Dove, um, which is, well, do you want to tell us a little bit about kind of what Dove is doing? Because again, I, Dove, a lot of, I, you know, I first encountered Dove with those kind of the, this, the lineup of the different, I think they were all women, if I'm remembering correctly, you know, or women appear, what's the terminology, women appearing? 
Yeah, like feminine, feminine appearing people. Yeah, Thank sure. You. Feminine appearing people um, of different body sizes. And that was their, you know, that's not going back a while now. Yeah, I mean, they've been doing like the campaign for true beauty for like, I think 20 something years. That's, yeah. A long time. Yeah. And so now they're taking it further with some legislation and, so, and kind of advocating and supporting. So can you share a little bit about your role in, in that? So Dove um, is partnering with NAFA, the National Association to Advance Fat Acceptance, and also um, Project Flare. Um, they are, oh, I always mix up in my head. It's either Project Flare or Flare Project. I think it might be Flare Project. And what's amazing, right, is like NAFA has been around since 1969 and has been doing sort of work in the political realm and around fat acceptance for a very long time. Um, the, the Flare Project is really focused on um, legislation uh, and changing. So for example, where I live in San Francisco, even though in California, weight discrimination is legal and the county of San Francisco size is a protected category um, because of a fat lawyer who made the case in San Francisco. And like that lawyer is now, you know, I think started the flare project. Um, so these two organizations ha are partnering with Dove um, and uh, you know, working on key legislation right now on the East coast. Um, and my role has really been, in helping them get the word out with sort of, you know, and, and, and humanize the story, right? Like to make the story um, really grounded in personal experience. And it, it's, it's just really exciting to kind of, they're working with, I think about 15 partners, all of whom are in larger bodies. And, and we all have these different kind of backgrounds and areas of expertise and interest and ways that we tell this story. Um, but it's all, we're all kind of coming together to really create not only like, I think what's amazing is, right, you've got like the political piece, which is very specific, very kind of logistical, dry, right? There are ways that you get laws passed and it's kind, it's like a little bit, you know, it's formulaic, right? Not super compelling to most human beings. Then you've got kind of Dove where they've been doing this incredible work around the true beauty stuff for years, like their commitment to kind of um, improving girls' self-esteem and really um, funding research that really shows the impacts of body satisfaction on a person's life. And then you've got, you know, us who are all like these larger body people who are often activists or doing some kind of work um, around this in our own lives, around ending weight discrimination in our own lives. So it's just so exciting to kind of see all of this come together around passing legislation to end weight discrimination, um, which is just really like right now, weight discrimination is legal in almost every state in the United States. And this has really major impacts. Um, it has impacts around, you know, for example, um, people in larger bodies uh, often are less likely to get promoted, are less likely to get hired in the first place. There's a pretty sizable wage gap between straight size people and plus size people, especially when we get into the category of women, like a plus size women make anywhere between $9,000 and $19,000 less per year than um, her straight size counterpart. This is connected to medical discrimination. It's connected to, I would argue, um, potentially it could have impacts for fashion and companies refusing to make clothing for the bodies that actually exist in our, in our country. Um, so, and I also think that like, you know, legislation also has the, the potential to impact, right, social dynamics. Um, if this is now on the books as a form of, legitimate discrimination. Um, this is really important, right? Because right now what's happening is we're having this conversation because it's not illegal to discriminate on the basis of weight. Right now, the conversation, the referendum is happening in the arena of health. And, and it's really obfuscating. This is a human rights issue, first and foremost, period, patently, the end, right? We have to understand that someone's health status should not be contingent upon their access to dignity to fair employment and to fair compensation. And so what's being missed right now as the conversation is happening in the health domain is the fact that this is primarily a human rights issue. So I really think with the legislation, it makes it undeniably in that arena, which is an enormous win. So I'm very excited to be a part of that. Oh my God, that is incredible. That's incredible. And so 
it's being, is this what's happening right now? It's being voted on. Is that, or talk, discussed in the, cause I've been seeing these right now. They're gathering names um, for a petition. I mean, I could give you the links people. I would love it if people sign the petition. Yeah, actually that would be great. But aren't there people, I've been seeing social videos of people like giving like anecdotal stories. That's part of this, isn't it? And for New York. Is the New York thing connected? Yeah, I mean, they they went, so NAFA, I think NAFA, representatives of NAFA, were in New York and were announcing this. I think there's also legislation being proposed in Vermont as well. Um, so, uh, yeah, I mean, essentially they're working on a couple of key states um, and NAFA's out there with Dove right now. Uh, so it's like, I'm kind of on the, I'm on like the digital team where we're kind of doing some of the ground, like laying some of the groundwork um, and the human stories on social media. That's like my my part. I love that. Wow, that's amazing, Reggie. Um, oh, such good work. It just it's it brings so much hope. Like I I feel I'm in Canada, so I I don't we're, I know for sure we're not <laughs> our weight and size are not protected here. I don't I don't know if it's on the radar as an issue up here, but if it gets past when it gets passed i'm going to go with when it gets passed in the us and adopted by all the states i think that raises the um awareness for other countries and i mean that's just it's only such a good thing i hadn't even thought about the fashion implications so even you saying that i was like wow because that would be it would be so helpful in the medical field in the workplace like it, it really is weight discrimination is so rampant and Oh, the fact that it could be protected is amazing or that we could be protected is incredible. So, yeah, I mean, I agree. I mean, even I think about like, you know, the, even when the laws get passed, it, it's similar to um, like the Americans with Disabilities Act, where you still have to sort of the onus of proving discrimination happens is still on the person experiencing it. And that's sort of frustrating. But on the other hand, um, right there's the potential to create precedent in all these different areas. Like for instance, I would love to see like, I don't know if like the, uh, the American Academy of Pediatrics just came out with all these horrible recommendations um, for children in larger bodies. And I, I could see a case being made of like differential treatment on the basis of size, right? You do not get to decide that someone is having invasive surgery simply on the basis of, diff of a difference in size. Um, if you would not do this for a smaller child, a smaller body child, you should not be doing this for a larger body child axiomatic, right? Like peer, I think, I think right, this surgery needs to be done and, and over with and out and in the history books forever for everyone. I'm going to be very clear about that. But like, you know, the American Academy of Pediatrics was saying that this is still a legitimate form of health intervention, right? I think there could be a case to be made using this legislation that you can't treat a larger body child different than a smaller body child. Um, so, I mean, I, I wonder if even like these kinds of things, like I think, I think the, the, I think that there, that the effects are potentially extremely far reaching is what I'm saying. That's so exciting. Amazing. Amazing. Um, before we start recording, you had mentioned that this is your year to let go of guilt and shame. And I'm so intrigued. Tell us more about that so that, because I kind of, I want to bring that into my year as well. So where did that come from? Yeah. I mean, like I, I was, I had this, like, I bought this journal and it was, it was like, a, it's called Moonology. It's like all about like kind of noticing, like tracking things according to moon cycles, um, which I love that stuff. Um, and so it's the, one of the questions it asked was like, you know, you have probably a lot of goals this year. Like what's your number one goal? And I really sat with it, meditated with it. And I was like, you know, I think my number one goal is not letting shame and guilt dictate my life. And I think what's interesting is, right, like as someone who left diet culture and who is really, like really focuses a lot of energy on body love and body acceptance and, you know, all these things, right? As someone who like is so committed to that, it's really fascinating how I still had so much guilt and shame overall, right? As I was dismantling my shame about my body, I still had this glaring overall sense of like shame and guilt that just 
preeminated like my life. It was like deep in the architecture of how I thought and how I made decisions. And I'm, I'm still working through it, but it's like, you know, um, I think for me, it really comes down to like having a, an abusive, like dysfunctional childhood. Um, when you are a person who experience, when you're like, you know, when you're a person who experiences childhood abuse or neglect, you often are left with a lot of guilt and a lot of shame, right? Because some part of you still believes it was your fault. And the psychology of this is really interesting. I've gotten to learn from some really interesting people about like, where does the psychology of that come from? It comes from the fact that when you're a child, you know, you rely so much on your caretakers and and it is and for your survival and for your emotional co-regulation, like your nervous system. Um, and, you know, what, when you're in an abusive situation as a child, your brain, um, like it's easier to accept that you did something wrong than to accept that your world is unstable. Um, because that is so terrifying, just so terrifying. It's much less terrifying to accept guilt and shame, even though it's much more uncomfortable. Um, so, you know, and, and we live with that without, if we're, if that pattern isn't interrupted, and even if it is, um, a lot of us live with that for our entire lives. I went no contact with my family about five years ago and it became, it created a pathway for me to, get out of survival mode um, and to, it's called like downregulate, right? Like when you're away from the people who traumatized you, your nervous system knows and it's finally able to, after, I mean, it took like a few years, like by, it was like year three and a half, four years when I'm finally starting to downregulate, meaning my nervous system is finally coming back online. I'm not living in fight or flight mode and I'm not living off of stress hormones. So this happened about a year and a half ago. It was really unsettling, you know, for to be disassociated, to have your nervous system offline for so long, for like over 20 years is really big. Um, and so, you know, uh, anyway, like, and, and I think I'm now in kind of year two of like my nervous system finally be, being back online after so many years. And, and I want to say, like, I had this abusive childhood, that phobia mapped right onto that you know, it mapped right onto the systems of like guilt and shame that I was learning as a child. And it mapped onto the idea that I can fix this, right? Like my little hero child self, who's like, my family's a mess. Everyone is, ha is ravaged by trauma and no one is doing anything to repair it. I can fix it. I'm five, but I can fix it. And it's and that, that same ideology of like, I'm experiencing fat phobia clearly it's my fault and I can fix it, right? I think it's important to understand. And I really, you know, I spoke to a, a colleague who I, you know, really adore who does work in eating disorders among children. She has a podcast called ED Parenting. Um, and she talked about this. She was like, she was like, you know, if I had to venture a guess, she was like, this is very, it's probably potentially controversial. But I remember asking her, I was like, can fat phobia alone lead to, these outcomes of like disordered eating, body dysmorphia, like really the lifelong takeover experience that a lot of, that someone like me experienced. And she also experienced it. She was like, in my professional opinion, absent an already dysregulated child, I do not think that fat phobia alone can do that. And it was really, not, I mean, right? Like I could feel it in my body when she said that. It was like, like it felt like something was moving, like my cells were reconstructed. It was a, it was really wild to kind of realize that my childhood experience had quite a lot to do with how fat phobia impacted me. Um, so anyway, you know, I've I've got like so diet culture is out of my life. So that trigger is out of my life, relatively speaking. We can't control one hundred percent, obviously. Um, but like, I didn't have people in my life activating me around fat phobia, and then kind of like what was left, and, I, and really that work, like the diet culture work really created room for me to reconnect my intuition and my boundaries. And it became impossible to stay around my family. My body was like, was like, we're not putting up with this. You don't tolerate this from your friends. You don't tolerate this from your partners. You don't tolerate this at work. Why in the world would you put up with like abusive, you know, manipulative 
people who refuse to be accountable for anything that they do. Like, I mean, it just doesn't make any sense. And my body was like, it was like the alarms were all going off, you know? Um, and so anyway, like going no contact back to kind of where I'm at now. Um, so, you know, I, I, I felt like the nervous system thing was massive. And then this year to kind of stay all of those narratives that I have that I'm inherently bad, that I'm irredeemable, that I'm inherently a monster. And the, and the other side of the coin, which is I must always self-improve. I must always work on my spiritual health. I must always be fighting my shadow self. I must never allow a decision to be one that comes from trauma right? Like this whole puritanical dehumanizing narrative of like, I must be some muted censored version of myself in order to not cause harm. That's shame and guilt. So I was living in that. Right. And so I just was like, I'm done. And I think it, it, I was like, gosh, I wrote it in my moonology thing. Who knows what's going to happen? It was like somehow the power of the moonology worked. <laughs> it was like somehow just saying it open something up and my body was like oh okay and I felt like she just sort of was like well fine well like let go of that architecture of shame and guilt and sure and it's, it's been like it's it's so funny right because I've been such a proponent of acceptance body acceptance accepting like all these parts of us whether we like love them or not whether the culture likes them or not right and meanwhile, I've been self-flagellating about my psychology and my neurodivergence as someone who like came from this horrible childhood, right? Um, I'm like self-flagellating and hating myself for like basically having um, trauma-informed brain architecture, uh, you know? And so it's it's been like so amazing to kind of like just for me to give my own brain or my own body permission to just kind of let it go. And it's, it's been incredible, right? Because like, I, I was just talking to a friend about it right before this call. I was like, you know, it just feels like this sense of, I just don't, yeah, I just don't need to push myself so hard. I don't need to push life so hard. I don't need to have, I don't need to constantly be in inquiry. Is this the, is this my highest self? Am I in my highest vibration as I'm doing this? Am I in my most integrity at all times? And I was like, I just, it's not like a permission slip to be a dirt bag, but it's a permission slip to kind of just be a human and not be a savior and not be a saint. Um, which frankly, I mean, in our culture, unfortunately, I really do, whether I come from it, whether, you know, you come from a traumatized background or not, the culture really does put that on women and especially women who are visible in any way. So it's kind of like, it's very, it's all very complex, but it's been like really interesting to just be like, what would it look like to say, you know, you can have a perception of me that's not aligned with my own and my own perception of myself will win when those two things are, are, you know, are in conflict, you know? Amazing. Oh my gosh. I can feel the energy of like the shifting back and forth from, oh, the traumatized child to the hyperachiever, like in response to, I, I, I so deeply relate to everything you're saying. You just helped me get some insight into my own hyperachiever tendencies. I'm like, oh, I didn't quite put it. I, yeah, I definitely have done some work around family of origin stuff around that, but the mapping of the anti-fatness, fat phobia onto that, I haven't quite thought about in that way before. So that's actually really interesting. We'll be thinking about that for a while, Virgie. Yeah, interesting. Thank you. Um, beautiful. And again, perfect segue into joy. So how do you connect to joy? How do you choose joy? Well, I mean, I, I have to point at this. I mean, I'm like, this is this is above, um, this is above my bed in my bedroom. Yeah. Virgie's pointing to a beautiful um, painting. Let me describe it. Yeah, describe <laughs> it. Yeah, yeah. So it's it's a it's a oh my god! It, it, like the the story of the painting is just joy, joy, joy. So I'm so excited. So I'm a huge fan of San Francisco based artist Gina Contreras. Um, Gina, similar to me, we, we both have Latinx backgrounds. Um, the painting itself is very large. I mean, it's like, I have a king size bed 
So it's like, I guess it's like six feet across, something like that. Is that correct? Six feet? Yeah. So it's like six feet across. It's a very large painting. Um, and it's, it's, a, it's a self-portrait of her as she's lying in her bedroom, um, face down and, uh, well, her face is, you can see her face, but she's on her tummy and her, and her rolls are kind of like sticking out a little bit. You can see that you can see like the texture of her rolls, um, as she's laying on her belly and she has got this traditional Mexican blanket that has all these beautiful colors, um, in it. And then behind it, there's this underneath that blanket is another blanket that's blue and has all these red roses on it. So, you know, I'm a super fan of her. So I know she uses these, these images, she uses like the Mexican blanket imagery consistently. And that's a part of my childhood as well. She uses the imagery of the floral imagery and kind of, um, she has like a, um, <laughs> like it, the, the nerdy word for it is horror vacui, which is, uh, the, the fear of empty space, which is very characteristic of like lots of other cultures, basically like where there's like not a lot of, there's not a lot of negative space. Um, so she uses a lot of the space with color, with flowers, with her body and whatever. Um, so I, you know, some people might call it maximalism, which is what I love. So it's like a very maximalist, very colorful painting. Um, so it's this six foot painting. Um, it's above my bed, you know, me and my partner sleep under it and have sex under it, like, you know, <laughs> all the time. And so it's like, it's like this, and I remember when we, I was like thinking about buying it and I was like, Andrew's my partner. I was like, which one should we get? Cause she had like six for sale. And I was really interested in a very large piece, like a six to eight foot piece. And he was like, well, that one looks like your back. So I would think that we should get that one. And I was like, I love this. And then I talked to Gina. Um, I was like, Gina, I bought one of your paintings. Can we talk about it a little bit? And she was like, yeah, she was like, Oh my God, you got the back painting. She's like that one was so massive for me because she's like, as a painter, I've done so much documentation and self-work around my front, right? Like my body, my boobs, my belly, my like genitals, my thighs, but my back has always been this like glaring, like, I don't like it. It doesn't look right. So for her, this was like a really big piece. And she was like, I'm so glad a fat person got this because it's so like, I can't always, I can't control whose house my stuff goes into but I'm so glad that it went into yours. So it was like this really beautiful moment where we're vibing over like having a fat back and stuff like that. And the other thing that I love that I'm going to mention that that's in, I think part of the joy, I think that I share when I look at this, and this is just such a microcosm of like, like fat joy in my life and how I like incorporate it with things like this. Um, but she told me a story of how when she was in art school, not only were they telling her not to do self-portraits because she's fat and brown, um, they were also like, do not create large pieces because only very, very large institutions or extremely wealthy people purchase them because they're disproportionate in size to most people's homes. And she kind of went along with this for a long time and then just was like, fuck this. Like I'm making big ass pieces. So she started painting these like enormous six foot, eight foot, you know, paintings of her body. And I just feel like, oh, there's just so much delight and kind of like the resistance of the academy, the resistance yes. of the rules, her kind of coming into her own, her decision to like make these colorful, enormous self-portraits um, and the refusal of her to like make herself small professionally or otherwise creatively. And so I feel like for me, I'm like, just even like in those moments where like, I guess that whole story that took me like, however, seven minutes, I don't know, a long time to tell you, um, it lives in that portrait in like a single second in my head. Like yes. when I see that portrait, I have that whole story. And for me, like, you know, I think sometimes it's really hard to rally in this culture. And then whenever we can have the shortcuts, whenever we can have like, oh, the fat candle that has the tummy or like the painting above my bed or, you know, like that little that little thing that reminds me to like appreciate that I have a body, um, you know, or that like whatever, like, you know, I mean, all these little things. I just, I think like there's all these little totems and stuff all around my house that kind of create that feeling. And then, so I think there's that, that part of the practice. And then I think, you know, the next thing I'm thinking of is I'm like about to take 
uh, 12 plus size people to Italy on like a plus size journey of eating and revelry. Um, and we're bringing a photographer. Um, and so I was, you know, like, first of all, we're in the, we're in this massive group chat, like together. That's like so active, right? We're like best friends. We're talking like all day, every day. So it's a bunch of fat people talking about everything from like, you know, a recent, um, like loss to, you know, what are your thoughts on chub rub to what are you packing? How are you packing? Um, you know, how are you making sure that you're going to be comfortable on the plane? Like what hacks are we going to use? You know, those kinds of things. And so like that whole experience of having this with fat people and just being like, oh my God, we're so stoked to know each other, which is so anti what we've been taught by diet culture and fat phobia. So we're like having so much fun being friends. We're bonding over the shared experience of being fat, not allowing it to alienate us. Um, and it's just fun. Right. And like, and they, like, for me, it's like, they've pushed me to like do so many cute, fun things. Like I'm like, like one of them was like, Oh my God, I have these like fried egg, like, socks I'm going to bring. And then everyone had a fried egg thing. I was like, I'm literally wearing these steaks are sitting out. So I'm going to pack them. But I was like, Oh, I have fried egg earrings. I'm like, Oh, I have a fried egg shirt. Oh, I have a fried egg dress. But like, we have, we're having a whole fried egg day. And I was like, this whole, I was like, this is so fun. Right. Like to kind of celebrate this food, whatever. Um, so like, I think about that. And then I've gone with another group we went to Bali. It took two plus size groups to Bali in September of 2022. And it was just like all of these moments of like laughter and being in the pool and like even the moments where it's like, oh my gosh, is this thing going to fit me? Is this sarong going to fit me? And we all have to wear it because we're going to a temple, you know, um, like, and even that felt like, you know, I know how to advocate for that. And I'm going to go up and advocate for it. And it gives me joy to be able to be like, I, like, I have no shame about this. This is about a body that I care about. And I'm not even going to prevaricate. If it doesn't fit, we're just going to get you a second one. We're going to tie them together. And we're going to fix it, right? And so, like, all of those little things that just sort of, I think, at one time really could have debilitated me and really did debilitate me um, to be able to just sort of be like, yeah, sure. That sounds good. Let's do it. Um, that, that feels really incredible. And sort of, I think like, uh, yeah, the community piece then specifically, right. You go to somewhere like Italy where it's like, everything is so beautiful and colorful. There's such a joy to vive that is like so inherent in the culture. There's so much good food. And of course there's fat phobia and weirdness. Like, yeah, so there's going to be all this stupid stuff we're going to have to navigate as well. But we're going to be like best friends and we're going to make fun of fat phobes and we're going to like wear amazing food. And we're going to be like, yeah, but I'm eating tiramisu. So like, you can't touch me because it's a superpower. Or like, I, you know, like all of those things. So, so I don't know, like there's, there's so many other instances I could think of, but those are kind of like two little stories that I thought I could, that really speak to, I think, fat joy. Yeah, those are so emblematic of fat joy on so many levels. So thank you. Thank you for sharing that. Your fat joy with us. Um, Virgie, this has been such a pleasure. It's been so wonderful to, to listen to you, learn from you, connect with you. Thank you. Thank you for being here. Oh, thank you for having me. Before we go, I'd like to read a poem because poetry can reach our hearts in a different way. Poems can have us feel in a different way. And that's what this podcast is all about. Expanding our hearts, deepening our empathy, and inviting in joy. So each week, you get a new poem. Virgie Tovar has been one of my fat elders for years, and it was such a treat to chat with her and hear about her journey. And it got me thinking about the poem, one of the poems that I love and share a lot in my creative writing workshops, which is called Let Me Begin Again. And it's by Major Jackson. And I especially love the last line of this poem, and I hope you will too. Let me begin again as a quiet thought in the shape of a shell slowly examined by a brown child on a beach at dawn, straining to see their future. Let me begin this time knowing the drumming in my dreams is me inheriting the earth, is morning lighting up the rivers. Let me burn my vanities, 
old music in the pines, sifters of scotch, a day moon like a signature of night. This time, let me circle the island of my fears only once, then live like a raging waterfall and grow a magnificent mustache. Let me not ever be the birdcage or the serrated blade or the empty season. Dear glacier, dear sea of stars, dear leopards disintegrating at the outer limits of our greed, soon we will encounter you only in motivational tweets. Reader, I should have married you sooner. This time, let me not sleep like the prophet who believes he has seen infinity. Let me run at breakneck speeds towards sceneries of doubt. I have no more dress rehearsals to attend. Look closer. I am licking my lips. Thank you for joining me today. My hope is that you're feeling a little less alone and a little more seen. So until the next episode, you can find me on Instagram at fatjoy.life, on YouTube at youtube.com slash at fatjoy, and on Patreon at patreon.com slash fatjoy. Please do check out the show notes for how you can connect with my amazing guest and for the links to the poem. All right, lovely. I am sending you off with my best wishes for an abundantly fat joy day. And I look forward to talking to you again soon. Bye-bye.